the passage of scripture that we're looking at together as we're going through this Equip for Battle teaching series is Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, if you have your Bible or Bible app with you. And as we've been going through this passage, the Apostle Paul talks here about the armor of God. And we've noted that the armor of God is just a metaphor that Paul uses to describe how, although we're believers, although we're followers of Jesus, although when we turn in faith to Christ, we receive these incredible benefits and privileges, we actually have to learn the discipline of using those benefits and privileges in our daily lives. I mean, in Jesus Christ, we've been given resources with which we can meet any battle, address any enemy in any kind of spiritual skirmish or conflict. But unless we learn how to use what we have, we'll face defeat. So Paul has been saying to us, every day, whether you recognize it or not, you are on a battlefield. And it is a battle for your soul. So let's come to this passage, let's read it again, and let's let its teaching again seep deeper into us. And then we're going to look today at one piece of this spiritual armor. We're in Ephesians 6, and I'll pick it up in verse 10. And as we hear it, remember, this is the word of God. And Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. This week, I want us to focus on this helmet of salvation. And a first question that might come to mind for us, similar to the other pieces of armor, okay, so why would Paul use the helmet as the armor piece of salvation? Well, let's look at this. Look, look, at a Roman soldier's helmet. Typically, they were made of some heavy metal like bronze or iron. Here's a picture to help you kind of get the image of it. That, that's what they look like. Inside of the helmet, there would be a lining of felt or sponge, leather of some kind, just to make the weight bearable. And really, nothing short of an ax or hammer could pierce this really heavy metal. In some cases, it was hinged with a visor at the front of it. So we look at that and think, Okay, so why do we need a helmet of salvation? Well, again, as other pieces of armor that we've looked at, we note understanding kind of the nature and purpose of a Roman soldier's helmet helps us understand, gives some insight in why the helmet of salvation is essential for those of us who are followers of Jesus. 
Again, Roman soldiers, their helmet extended down the back of their neck. At times, they would have actually kind of a metal ledge to protect their neck. And once it was fully on, about the only thing on the head that was exposed would be the eyes, nose, and mouth. That was about it. And, and while that kind of helmet could protect you from the enemy's arrows, its primary purpose was to ward off blows from an enemy's broadsword. Now, a broadsword was this massive, it was like a three to four foot long double-edged sword that an opponent would hold with both hands. They kind of held it like a baseball bat. And an opposing soldier would lift it over his head to try to bring it crashing down upon your head to give you a split personality, we could say. <laughs> so understand. A helmet, this helmet was the primary means of protecting your head from those kind of blows. I don't think it's too difficult to see some of the spiritual symbolism of the helmet. Because we notice we go through the New Testament that it says often that the enemy's attacks against us primarily come against our minds, right? That's why Paul would write in Romans, therefore be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. That's why Paul would say, take every thought captive. That's where the battleground will be and make it obedient to Christ. So understand the helmet of salvation, it protects you from the enemy's attacks on your mind. I mean, let's consider this. What would the enemy, Satan and his forces, what would their broadswords be? Well, we could say from Scripture, well, they use the double-edged sword of lies, really. For one, they bring the lies of discouragement into our lives. Our enemy loves to discourage us in our Christian walk. He, he tries to get us to question whether following Jesus is even worth it. He'll bring up all sorts of discouraging thoughts into our minds. I mean, you go to church every week, you read your Bible, and, and you're still struggling with this then? Or look at your kids. You're trying to raise them in Jesus. Are they really any different from other kids? Or you, you've prayed to God. Has your health even improved? It seems like it's gotten worse, hasn't it? He brings lies of discouragement. And along with it, he brings lies of doubt. Oh, he loves to bring doubts into our minds. I mean, when we fall into sin, he'll try to make us doubt our salvation. He'll try to bring to our minds thoughts, doubts like, you can never change, can you? Are you sure you're actually saved by faith? This Jesus thing doesn't really work, does it? That's his broadsword. So then we ask, how then in defending against that, do we put on the helmet of salvation? Because again, Paul says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. You know what's interesting about this? That word in English that we translate as take in the original Greek writing, it's a different Greek word than all the other words we translate as take in this passage. Because this word actually is better translated as receive, accept. It's more of a passive kind of verb. 
and really understand that was used then because it's actually tied to how a Roman soldier actually put on his battle armor in the ancient days. Because as a soldier put on his armor, and we went through, we've gone through the list, they would put on their belt and then their breastplate. They would put on shoes. Then as we looked last week, they would pick up their shield and ready to go into battle then. Then their attendant or armor bearer would hand them their helmet. And then the sword, which we'll look at together next weekend. So the soldier would have to receive or accept the final pieces of armor in order to be properly prepared for battle. And friends, doesn't that link with the spiritual reality that salvation is not something we kind of grab or obtain, but it's a gift. It's a gift that is offered to us by God. I mean, like a Roman soldier who received the helmet extended to him, we receive, we accept God's offering of salvation. And so as we've seen with the other pieces of armor, there's something I must do in this to put on this piece of armor. I must receive it. No one can receive it for me. And all that leads us, I think, to what the key question is as we look at this. So what's the salvation that is our helmet? Now, your initial thought, I would guess, along with mine, would be when you see the phrase helmet of salvation, it's kind of natural to assume that Paul's talking about the act of committing our lives to Jesus Christ. And it's that that protects us from attacks of discouragement or doubt. But then you realize as you're reading this, wait a second, Paul is writing here to those who are already followers of Jesus. He's not writing to unbelievers, encourage them to commit their lives to Jesus. They've already done that. So what salvation is Paul talking about when he says, take, receive this helmet of salvation? How do we do that? How do we obey that? And now to get at that, we need to dig into this a bit to see it, all right? So I need you to work with me. All right, stay with me on this. Okay, one problem we have initially when we're trying to understand what Paul means here is that the word salvation is a really, really broad term in Scripture. I mean, in the Bible, the word salvation actually refers to everything that God has done for us and does to us. That's a really broad term, right? But if we understand what this helmet of salvation is, we rightly ask, okay, so what's salvation mean? Let, let's get at this and understand the word salvation, what it literally means is to be rescued from peril. That, that's what it means. So we ask, so what peril are we rescued, are we saved from? Well, a good place to answer this is by going to the Gospel of Matthew. Right at the start of it, when an angel comes to Joseph and says these words of guidance. This is in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? Their sins. Scripture consistently says, friends, that the peril that we are saved from, rescued from, is sin and the corresponding death that goes along with it. Now I know this. The word sin has a significant public relations problem in a place like Calgary. It does. Pretty much anywhere in this culture. 
Some think it's just kind of an outdated, quaint old term that we can just kind of get rid of. We don't need to use it anymore. But really, let's remember, sin in Scripture is all the deterioration that comes in our fallenness. In Scripture, sin isn't just merely disobeying God. Sin is all the deterioration, all the alienation, all the disintegration that happens when you're separated from God. I mean, when a person simply decides to live life independent of God, you're separating from him. And ultimately, that's what Scripture says sin is. It's being separated from God, living life independently of God. And as soon as you do that, there's a disintegration that happens. In fact, Scripture insists that every problem there is, pick one, spiritual, psychological, social, physical, cultural, every problem you can imagine, they're all the result of the deterioration of the universe and the human condition that comes because of separation from God. Everything. So understand, if you don't grasp that, you can't understand biblical salvation. You really can't understand the breadth of this salvation unless you understand the breadth of the biblical concept of sin. Okay, so, so the term salvation in Scripture, it means to be saved from, to be rescued from sin and from the death that flows out of that sin. That's what Jesus saves or rescues us from. Make sense? Okay. Now, along with that, Scripture also says that every follower of Christ experiences three tenses in their salvation. Meaning there's a past tense, there's a present tense, and a future tense to the salvation we receive. When we turn in authentic faith to Jesus Christ. And again, you can't understand the glory and the beauty of our salvation unless you see this. So I want to look at these three tenses, all right? First of all, there's the past tense of salvation. And the Bible says that in Christ, you have been saved. But saved from what? You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You have been pardoned, right? Jesus stood in your place and he received on the cross what you and I deserved. And again, the magnitude and radical nature of the past tense of salvation is something we talked about in this series when we looked at the breastplate of righteousness. Do you remember that? Of Jesus standing in our place. We looked at that, the wonder of it, because that passage dealt at it. We looked at, for example, Romans chapter 8, and that powerful word in verse 1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and we looked and said, you can put that another way, you can say, not any of your violations, nothing you do wrong can bring condemnation to you if you're in Christ. And just consider what that means. Again, we noted this a few weeks ago. Jesus says, when you receive me as Savior, the Father loves you as he loves me. In the same way. The moment you receive Christ as your Messiah and Savior, you are as loved and accepted by God as you can ever be. There will never be a change 
in God's acceptance and love of you. It's perfect. You're adopted into his family. You are his child. And all that's wound up in the past tense of salvation. You have been saved through faith in Christ. And here's the thing. Often it seems when people talk about salvation, that's where they kind of leave it. They really kind of tend to talk mainly or only about that portion of the salvation that Christ extends to us. But friends, that past tense of salvation is just one dimension of the salvation that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Because there's also the present tense to our salvation. A present tense. For example, it's spoken of in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. This is in Philippians chapter 2, just the right of Ephesians 6. Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul says, work out what? Your own salvation. And, and do it with fear and trembling. Now you could read that and say, well, wait a second. I thought I received my salvation. Do I have to earn it? Well, no, you received it, you did. But Paul says here, what he's talking about here, is though you've received that salvation you have, you are also being saved. Okay, what does that mean? It means that God is still at work in you to transform you, to have you will and to do according to his good purposes. He wants to mold you into living in line with who you are in Christ. He wants to sanctify you. Maybe in you it's a lack of self-control. Maybe it's a lack of joy in your life. Maybe it's a lack of spiritual courage. Maybe it's fear that you battle with. Maybe it's anxiety. Understand God is saving you from those patterns of living. That's why we can say we have been saved, but we're also being saved. Because the Holy Spirit has come into your life through faith in Christ, and through that process of personal transformation, he's making you more and more like Jesus as you join in him in what he's doing. So in that kind of way, we're being saved, right? But that's still not it. That's still not all there is to salvation because there's also a future tense to salvation. And I wanted to lead us here because, friends, I think this is what Paul is talking in particular about in Ephesians 6. He's talking about the future tense that we will be saved. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. But eventually... We will be saved completely from even the presence of sin. So that means that as long as we're here in this life, we'll always experience the effects of sin. Just read the news each day. Everything from disease to racism is a result of the disorder that sin brought into creation. But praise God, someday that will change. Unlike a circular view of history that some hold to, where they view history as just continually repeating, where life just gets reincarnated one generation after another. Scripture, God's word describes what is a linear view of history. 
that there is actually going to be a culmination to history when Jesus Christ returns. And on that day, if you've turned in faith to Jesus, all the presence and the influence of sin will be completely eradicated out of your life. And you will be a glorious, a resurrected person. You will actually be your true self. You will be the person whom God designed you to be. Now listen to this. You won't be God, but scripturally actually says, you will be like God. That's what 1 John says. And friends, I think that's the element of salvation that Paul is talking about when he exhorts us to put on the helmet of salvation. I think he's saying, put on the helmet of the salvation to come. Why would that be the focus? Well, look at this. There are actually two other places in Scripture where Paul writes about spiritual armor. One's in Romans 13, also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this. For a helmet, put on what? Read it with me. The hope of salvation. It is the hope of salvation. It's something we haven't received yet. It is the hope. It is something yet to come. Put on that helmet, he says. Then in Romans 13, go back to Romans 13. Listen to what Paul says here. This is verse 11. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's talking about something we're drawing nearer towards, the perfection, the glory that's coming when Christ returns. That's why Paul would say earlier in Romans 8, he, he describes it, he says, it's like all of nature is standing on tiptoes waiting for that day. Because the Bible says that creation itself, nature itself, was also marred by, it was entangled in our fall into sin. I mean, because of humanity's sin, even nature isn't what it ought to be. I mean, nature, it's full of death and decay just like we are. But the day is coming when our full salvation will arrive. And there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem, and a new body we walk in. And if you follow Jesus in faith, you'll be renewed. And even creation itself will be renewed. It'll be restored. It'll experience full salvation as we will through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say, again, this is a bit later in Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness. And what are we to put on? The armor of light. When Paul says put on the armor, he means... Okay, the day is near. That day is coming, so live, friends, as if that day is about to show up. Put on that mindset. Put on the hope of the salvation to come. The great British writer and apologist C.S. Lewis, in an article he wrote called The World's Last Night, I encourage you to read it. Lewis said that if we want to understand what Paul is saying in places like 1 Thessalonians 5, Ephesians 6, if you want to understand what it means to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation, it means to be a person who's always living in light of the future. 
And to illustrate this, Lewis brings up the image of a woman using a makeup mirror. He says, for example, here's a woman. She's making herself up. It's early morning. She's in her apartment. Now, that early in the morning, the sun, sun isn't even up yet. She's in her apartment, though. The lights are on. But she knows that what looks good in that apartment at that point will not look so good under the light of the full sun. So she uses a makeup mirror. And the idea behind a makeup mirror, in case you don't know, is that you turn the lights on this mirror up and you create kind of an almost artificial environment in that little apartment. You create the simulation of the sun. Why would you do that? Well, so you can dress yourself for the light that's coming. I mean, you could dress yourself in such a way that it looks fine for the apartment, but you know that any moment, the sun will be up. And as Lewis concludes, he writes, that's very like the problem of all of us, to dress our souls, not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. So what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5, when he says, put on the hope of salvation, what he's saying in Ephesians 6 when he says, put on this helmet of salvation, is that you and I need to live with the hope and expectancy that any moment, irresistible light could come crashing through the ceiling. Because I tell you, friends, someday it will. That's this linear view of history, that any moment, this could be the last act. The curtain of history could come crashing down because the irresistible light of God's glory will someday come crashing through the ceiling of time and space in like solid blocks of intolerable light and weight. And it will reveal everything. And then if you've only been living for yourself in this life, I mean, whether you are a prime minister or a queen or a president, whether you have a monument to you downtown or whether you have office towers with your name on it, under the solid light of God's incredible, irresistible, incandescent purity and glory, all that will look like chaff. It will look like refuse, friends. But anything you've been doing, loving God, loving your neighbor in the name of Christ will be suddenly revealed for its true glory. Things that were always obscure will be revealed for the eternal beauty in that light. So you want to dress. You want to live knowing that light could come at any moment. Amen? But not only that, <laughs> in the salvation to come, we're also going to receive these glorious resurrected bodies. I mean, the great theologian and preacher Jonathan Edwards said, here on earth, we have five senses. Five senses. Most likely in life to come, we'll have two to 3,000, was his estimation. Can you imagine that? <laughs> you can't, really. Of course you can't. Because you can't tell a person who's been born blind what the faculty of sight is like. You can't do it. And we know there are whole dimensions of the reality to come we can't even begin to grasp. 
That's why Paul would write when he wrote to the church in Corinth, his first letter. This is in 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye is seen, nor ear is heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even begin to grasp what God has laid out for you in the life to come. <laughs> and not only that, but in the salvation to come, we're going to experience what theologians refer to as the beatific vision. What's a beatific vision? Well, the beatific vision means the eternal and direct visual perception of God. It means seeing God face to face. Can you imagine? The Bible says we're not just going to have these glorious resurrected selves, we're going to have this glorified relationship with the Lord himself. Can you imagine? The beatific vision, it will be that, truly, that will ultimately satisfy you. John spoke of it this way in his first epistle. This is in 1 John 3, verse 2. John said, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be is not yet appeared. We're waiting for that salvation. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. There it is. Because we shall see him as he is. That's the beatific vision. And then he adds, and everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who puts on that hope like a helmet, purifies himself as he is pure. Okay. So what does it mean for Paul to say in Ephesians 6, take up, put on this helmet of salvation that's coming for us? Well, we know. Paul said, I can handle my sufferings now because I weigh them against what I know is on its way. Do you know where Paul got such boldness, such courage? He thought it through. He says he weighed it out, he added it up, he reckoned it, he accounted it. I mean, like the missionary and martyr, Jim Elliott, who also concluded he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's that kind of living. And then we ask the question, truly, if I put on that kind of helmet, that salvation of the hope of the life to come, does that work? Does it actually change things in the way I live daily? Can I put it this way? Friends, all of those followers of Jesus in the first century who went to the lions singing, it was because they had the hope of the salvation to come. They were able to give away their goods to the poor. They were able to live lives of sacrifice. They were able to die with a song on their lips because they had, as a helmet, their confidence, their focus on the salvation to come. So the question simply is, how about us? And how fitting, as we reflect on that question, that we're led to this table. Because we know God's word tells us as we come to the table of communion 
We come for one, looking back historically. We remember the body of Christ broken for us. But scripture also says that when we come to this table, every time we drink of this cup, we look forward. We proclaim his death until when? He comes. So we look past and we look forward with expectancy. And if your faith is in Christ, perhaps it's for the first time today you want to receive this meal, I invite you to come. It will pass it out, wait till we've all received the bread and take it together likewise with the cup. And if, if that's not where your heart is yet, boy, there's no embarrassment in passing the elements by. We're just so thankful you're here with us. But let me pray and then let's come as a people longing for that salvation. Amen? So Father, as we come to the table, we pray by your spirit, you would prompt our minds in remembering the incredible depths of your love for us expressed in Christ on the cross. And Father, as well, I pray that by your spirit, you would nourish us in this meal. You would form within us, even as we see bread and cup, an enlightened, perhaps it be, a revelation from you of the hope we have in the life to come. So we come in faith together. And again, all God's people say, amen.